Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to turn it to our producer, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We're always so glad that you're able to join us, and we hope you're having a very blessed day. Remember, if you ever don't catch us here on the radio, you can always catch us online. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Or find us on your favorite podcast app, and then make sure to hit subscribe so that you never miss any of our future conversations. In today's episode, we're talking about pro-life apologetics, how you can start to have real dialogue with people who don't agree with you on the difficult question of abortion. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about an upcoming Supreme Court case that could provide protections against abortion for the unborn as early as 15 weeks of gestation. In our Bricklayer segment, what can you do to start leading the conversation in your community about what important political decisions are made? And listeners, if you ever have an idea for the Bricklayer segment, ways that people can start living their faith in the public arena, let me know. Or you can also send me any questions that you have about faith and politics. Shoot me an email. The email address is show at mncatholic.org. Or find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're now blessed to be joined on the line by Emily Albrecht. She is a speaker, writer, and coach with the Equal Rights Institute. She's the former co-president of Oles for Life at St. Olaf College, where she worked to transform campus culture using the Equal Rights Institute's apologetics to foster respectful and productive dialogues about abortion. She is using her educational background to write, develop curriculum, and teach pro-life advocates how to change minds, save lives, and promote a culture of life in their community. Emily is particularly passionate about reaching the youth of the pro-life movement. As a recent college student, she understands what it feels like to walk unprepared into a culture that is overwhelmingly pro-choice. Emily Albrecht, it's great to speak with you today. Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. What propelled you to become an advocate for the unborn, an advocate for the pro-life cause? I grew up Catholic and grew up pro-life, but I never really got involved in the movement until I went to college. You know, I think a lot of Catholic students, when they enter college, kind of know that college will be a challenging place to share their values and keep their faith. But I really had no idea quite what I was getting myself into when I got to St. Olaf. I was inundated with a very pro-choice culture that was very hostile, quite honestly, towards what I believed. And that really propelled me to realize I needed to do something, essentially. I needed to get involved because the campus really needed to hear the pro-life message and what things were happening on our campus, the things that my pro-life club on campus were trying, weren't really working very well. And so that really caused us to start seeking out effective apologetics tools and figuring out what the best ways were that we could engage with the pro-choice students on our campus. We talked about in your bio that campus culture, at least at St. Olaf College, overwhelmingly pro-choice. Why does it seem that for young people, or at least on young people on college campuses, it's almost as though the default position is the pro-choice position, and we have to do our work in converting hearts and minds? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. I think so many students or 
even just people in my generation have grown up now in the post Roe v. Wade period where Roe happened with their parents and now it's just the law of the land as far as they're concerned and they've never really had to think about it before. That was just the culture they were brought up in. Well, of course abortion is okay. And most students I talk to have never had to think about it. They've never had to justify their pro-choice beliefs. It's just what their parents taught them and what the media taught them. They were never before having to engage in a conversation about actually whether abortion is moral or not. So it really is the case, at least from your perspective, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but the law is a teacher, and the fact of legal abortion since Roe has had a pedagogical effect in, in communicating what is right with regard to people's reproductive choices and the life of the unborn. Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong, there certainly are college students that have thought about this issue and considered it and come to their pro-choice view from some sort of an academic perspective, but that's not most of them. Most of them are just believing it because that's what they've been told, not because they've actually had to think about it very much before. So it just speaks to the importance of changing hearts and minds, but also changing laws uh, with regard to abortion. Both of those things matter. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Absolutely. I think there are so many wonderful pro-life organizations out there that are focused on doing both of those things. And we need to change the laws, and we also need to change individual people's hearts and minds. And just doing one isn't going to effectively end abortion. Emily, did you have a particular experience growing up or a moment or anything that made you such a passionate defender of the unborn? You said you grew up Catholic, and we'd like to think that, of course, naturally, all young Catholic people are pro-life. But was there anything that sort of flip the switch for you to make you from supportive to committed, as I like to say? When I entered college, I think the biggest transformative moment for me was seeing our local pregnancy resource center down in Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, They're wonderful, the Northfield Women's Center. They were hosting an annual fundraising banquet, and it was actually being held on the St. Olaf campus. They had, like, rented out one of the ballrooms, and hundreds of pro-choice students from St. Olaf lined the hallways of our student union in protest of this event. Not only did they not want the Pregnancy Resource Center to be doing something on the St. Olaf campus, but they didn't want the Pregnancy Resource Center in our town at all. And they wanted to prevent the donors from coming into this event and try to actually shut down the facility. And seeing that, like seeing how angry my fellow students were over this amazing pro-life resource in our community really flipped the switch for me to realize oh my gosh, there are actually people out there that don't understand what pro-lifers believe or why pro-lifers are pro-life. And I had always been pro-life, but I'd never really been empowered to do something about it until I saw that kind of mass hatred, quite honestly, towards pro-lifers. Well, it just underscores that it's a spiritual battle, no less than an intellectual and a battle for compassion in hearts and minds as well. So a uh, really, really fascinating tale. I've got a family member who attended another unnamed Lutheran college in Minnesota who had a similar experience of seeing what was wrong helped to lead him to what was right. So that's a really a fascinating story, Emily. Thanks for sharing that. Why do young voices matter in the abortion debate? Oh, well, I think young voices are honestly some of the most important in the abortion debate because abortion facilities are largely targeting the youth community. Most Planned Parenthoods in the United States are within just a few miles of a college campus. My population is the group of people that are most likely to seek an abortion. And they're also simultaneously the same group of people that have opportunity to talk about abortion. I mean, I think college campuses are meant to be the places where we're engaging with different ideas and when we're examining 
examining philosophy and morality and religions and all those kinds of things. Like nowhere else in the United States is there this place that is specifically meant for academic dialogue and for trying to figure out the way laws should be and the way that society should run. And so I think that the youth are the absolute perfect place to be having these discussions about is abortion moral? Should we be allowing this, essentially? That's the place that the conversations need to be happening. There are some classic techniques in pro-life apologetics talking about the, the science of human fertility, the science of the human embryo, showing people sonograms, you name it. But you engage in what you call pro-life relational apologetics. What does that mean? Relational apologetics essentially means that my first goal in a conversation is to connect with the pro-choice person I'm talking to on a personal, relational level. In other words, I think we all know that when you enter a conversation about abortion or, I mean, a conversation about any controversial issue for that matter, the other person already has their walls up. They know you have a different view from they do. They don't want to hear what you have to say, and they're automatically in defense mode. And so it doesn't matter how good my arguments are or what I'm going to show them. They're not going to be able to hear that. It's not going to get through their wall. I have to bring their wall down first. And so the very first thing that we always teach our students at Equal Rights Institute when we're training pro-life advocates how to have better conversations about abortion is all of these practical dialogue tips, these relational tips that will help bring the pro-choice person's walls down so that they will actually hear what you have to say and they can actually be affected by the arguments you're making. Talk a little bit more about some of those tips or those techniques. And, and, you know, one dimension probably is that you have to deal with the reality of women or men who've been associated with abortion in some way, whether procuring one or bringing a girlfriend or a partner to a clinic to procure an abortion. So there's a lot of woundedness there already. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. I think that the far majority of people, and we may not even know it, they may not be willing to bring that up in a conversation, but the far majority of people we talk to have had some experience with abortion, whether that's they know someone who had one or they had one themselves, or maybe they helped that person to get it by driving them or something like that. We always have to have that in the back of our minds, that the person we're talking to, whether they outright tell us or not, may very well have had a personal experience with this. And that always makes it a more emotionally difficult thing to talk about. So that means that it's really important for me to set an environment in our conversation where they feel comfortable sharing with me what they view, what they think, what their experiences are, what their view is, essentially. So in order to do that, I need to, first and foremost, ask a lot of questions about what they think. And I don't mean like, gotcha questions that are leading someone somewhere like no one wants to be led somewhere in a conversation and they can tell when you're doing that and they just shut down not helpful instead we want to ask really good clarification questions that show that we genuinely want to understand them and what they think and what experiences or thoughts have led them to their view and the more questions that i ask and the more i stop talking and show that I am actually listening to what they have to say, the more they start to be open and curious to hear what I think, because I'm demonstrating that I really want to get to know them for them, and I want to understand where they're coming from. What do you do when emotions start to run high on either side? How do you diffuse that? What do you do in those situations? Sure. So keeping my own emotions in check is always really important, and that takes a lot of practice. Really, I've learned that if I just think that I'm there to love the pro-choice person in front of me, and that is my primary goal, that helps keep my emotions much more in check because I am able to really hear them if I'm focused on loving them. And so that 
keeps my emotions at a lower level where I can just kind of input what they're saying into my brain and then come out with how I'm going to respond to it. But I'm not there to yell at them. I'm not there to (laughs) make them absolutely change their mind. I'm there to love them. And that means graciously explaining why their view doesn't make sense, but that also means understanding them so that I can do that. And I can't possibly do that if my emotions are running too high. (laughs) But in terms of if their emotions start running really high, honestly, the best thing that I found to do is to just listen to them for a little while. That means I have to stop talking and maybe I have to stop making arguments for a little bit. But that's okay because if what they need to do is vent to me or to tell me about a really difficult situation they were in, I can take that. I've had pro-choice people yell at me (laughs) and honestly, it doesn't rattle me that much. Like if that's what they need to do, if they need to get that out, that's okay. And suddenly after they've been yelling at me for a few minutes, they've realized that I'm actually listening to them. And maybe I'll show some really great listening skills on my face, such as nodding or looking them in the eye or rephrasing back to them what I hear them saying. And if I use those kinds of tools, they'll start to realize that I care about them and their emotions always go down. I've quite honestly only ever had one conversation with a pro-choice person where they were not happy with me, their emotions are really high, and they walked away. And we never got to have a productive conversation. One out of the hundreds and hundreds of conversations I've had on campuses, because all the rest ended in them realizing that I was there to listen. And we ended up having an amazing conversation. Wow, you've unlocked, I think for us and our listeners, the key to these conversations is treating people as persons who need to be loved and understood and listened to and accompanied and treated with compassion because they've got diverse experiences and backgrounds that have led them to where they are. And it's just a key to unlocking and diffusing so many difficult situations. So thanks for sharing that. We're speaking with Emily Albrecht. She is a coach and speaker with the Equal Rights Institute. We're talking about pro-life apologetics and making the case for the pro-life cause One of the things, Emily, in these conversations and when we talk about treating people with respect is just the importance of listening to them and being a bridge builder. But how can we do that in a way with our legislators? Have you had experience in that regard or talking to public officials about these questions? And What tips do you have for us in that public policy environment? I think one of the most important things that you can do when you're talking to, say, a legislator about this issue is to build common ground with them. And honestly, that's a tip that I give when you're talking to any pro-choice person. Really, honestly, the tips are not all that different. But if you want someone to really hear you, another thing that you can do is build common ground with what they already believe. Because I guess what? You you do actually have common ground with pro-choice people. You might not think that you do, or it might not always be obvious. But as they're talking, you can start to listen and see what concerns do we have in common. Often that's where I'll find common ground. I often don't agree with how the pro-choice person considers solving those concerns that they have, right? A lot of pro-choice people might be really concerned about women in poverty, and they don't want women in poverty to be stuck in poverty because they're forced to have a child. All right? I'm also really concerned about poverty. I can find a lot of common ground with that. I don't agree with their solution to say that abortion should be able to solve poverty. Like, that that does not follow in my mind, and I'll go ahead and talk about that with the person. But the very first thing I want to do is share that we're on the same team. Like, we have both have the same concerns. We both want to solve poverty or whatever that issue is that's causing them to really hone in on their pro-choice view. I also share that concern, and we can find common ground with that, and I can learn about how they think 
abortion helps to solve that issue. I think if you can help build common ground with your legislators as well and show that we're all on the same team, we all want to be making the world a better place, but we have different ideas about how to do that, they're going to be more open to hearing what you have to say. While we talk about at the Minnesota Catholic Conference, uh, working with our legislators, we try to find common ground for the common good and maybe identifying a connection or a a place of common ground on one issue helps us to find more common ground on more difficult issues down the road. Emily, I think there are a lot of folks out there who seem a little bit demoralized about whether it's abortion or some of the other difficult questions in our society. One thing that keeps me going is to remember the fact that I've changed my mind and viewpoint on a number of issues. I know lots of people who've undergone radical conversions, both politically or theologically. But what tips do you have for people who seem, you know, they've been around the pro-life question for so long, and although we've made a lot of gains in changing hearts and minds, and there's great work at pro-life pregnancy centers and other things in the public arena, there's still a sense of being demoralized by this culture. What words of encouragement do you have for those who've been in the trenches a long time? The first thing that I always remember if I'm having a hard day and feel like doing pro-life work today is really hard, I feel a little discouraged, is I remember that you never know the impact that you're having. Sometimes the impact is really, really obvious. For example, one big part of what we do at Equal Rights Institute is train people in sidewalk counseling. So Jacob, who is our head sidewalk counselor, has incredible stories of women who he knows have left the clinic after talking to him or to one of our students in sidewalk counseling. And we've seen pictures of those babies. Like that is a very tangible thing that we know we have done. But other things aren't nearly that tangible. And when I have conversations with people on college campuses, I might finish a conversation and they don't change their mind about abortion. To be quite honest, most people don't change their mind about something that big in one day. That's just not how the world works. Like, I wouldn't change my mind about the color of the sky. If someone had really good arguments that the sky was purple, it would take me more than a day to assess all those arguments and change my mind, right? So having that expectation that someone's going to change in a day isn't realistic. But over time, I've seen pro-choice people who I've talked to on a college campus outreach come back weeks later to another outreach with more questions to show that they've been thinking about what I said. And I've talked to people three, four, five times at subsequent outreaches and realized that change takes time, but you can start to see the progress of it. And it's not all going to be instantaneous, but you know that the things you're saying do have an effect on people. Even if you don't always get to see that effect right away or ever, I'm confident there are people I've talked to who've changed their mind about abortion that I don't know about because I didn't have the privilege to go back to that campus and do an outreach again. I didn't get to meet them again, but I don't know how our conversation has affected their life in the future. The sower sows the seed, and sometimes we don't know how the harvest is going to be reaped, and it might be reaped in a different time and in a different place than our own, and we just have to trust, and that's part of the walk of faith. So what an encouraging word uh, that you've offered us, Emily, about that, and a good reminder that even though we live in a culture of instant gratification, it's often the case that people don't change their minds right away, and, and certainly that's something we experience with folks in the pew and other work, people we work with at our capital is that they go in and they make an argument and they think the legislator is going to agree with them right away. And that's just isn't how it works in most cases. So that's really a good reminder of both patience and perseverance in this cause and then recognizing that we so often sow the seed but aren't necessarily the ones who will reap the harvest. So thanks for that word of encouragement in a way that helps us to both be people of prayer and to persevere. Emily, tell us more about the work of the Equal Rights Institute. I'm, I'm fascinated and intrigued and want to hear more. 
Equal Rights Institute is a national pro-life organization. We're based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, but we have staff that work all over the country. And we're dedicated to training pro-life advocates how to think clearly, reason honestly, and argue persuasively. So in other words, we want to help pro-lifers to understand the best, smartest pro-choice arguments that are out there in order to be able to refute them in the most gracious and loving and persuasive way possible. We work to understand those arguments, to teach people those arguments, to teach people the relational tips to make those arguments effectively. And that happens for us both through more academic dialogues, say the kinds of conversations you'd have on a college campus, and through sidewalk counseling, where we're engaging with women and with drivers outside of abortion facilities. Those are kind of the two realms we see in pro-life apologetics. And we seek to train people in both of those. And they're different kinds of apologetics. They're different tactics. And they're different arguments being made in both of those places. And we need to know how to engage with pro-choice people on both of those settings. We got one final question for you, Emily. What's the toughest pro-choice argument that you have to deal with? Uh, and then conversely, what seems to be the most effective response? Well, I think the smartest pro-choice argument that's being made today Um, The one that's being made by, I would say, most pro-choice philosophers, which we're seeing trickle down to a lot of college campuses. A lot of pro-choice students are learning these arguments, say, in their classes and starting to make them. Uh, The smartest one that we've heard is called the right to refuse argument, or I should say that's what we call it. It's based through uh, the violinist thought experiment, which is by Judith Jarvis Thompson. It's a really famous pro-choice paper. I encourage pro-lifers to go read it. Uh, It's super helpful to understand what the really smart pro-choice people are saying. And essentially what the right to refuse argument says is that, yes, the fetus is a person. Wow, that's crazy. Pro-choice people today are often agreeing with pro-lifers that the fetus is a person. However, the argument follows that just like a woman shouldn't be obligated to, say, donate her kidney to another person, In the same way, she shouldn't be obligated to donate her body to this fetus that is a person, but she should have the right to refuse the use of her body to this other person that's trying to use it. That's a really unique kind of pro-choice argument, and we're seeing it blow up all over the place because it does accept the fact that the fetus is a biological human and a philosophical human, so to speak, that should have rights. It accepts that already, but it says even if the fetus is a person, abortion should still be okay. That's a really interesting pro-choice argument. And we have tons of materials out on how to respond to it. You can look up all those materials. I'll give you a super brief overview right now. Um, But I encourage you to look up on the Equal Rights Institute website all of our thorough responses to the right to refuse arguments. The very brief version is we make a distinction called help, not help, or kill. In other words, I agree that someone shouldn't be obligated to help someone who is, say, dying from kidney failure. Like, if I was able to donate my kidney to someone that was dying from kidney failure, that'd be super awesome. Like, I probably maybe should do that. (laughs) I'd be really good Catholic if I, like, was willing to do that, maybe something along those lines. But I don't think the government should obligate me to help them. Like, you can't obligate me to donate my kidney. That's true. You don't have an obligation to help. But in that situation, there's a difference between me choosing to not help the person by donating my kidney and me killing the person. In other words, like I could just shoot the person with a gun or hack them with an axe or something like I have the ability to kill them. That would obviously be wrong. Me just refusing to help them, me refusing to donate my kidney. That's not the same thing. That's a not help scenario. I could either help not help or kill them. But those three options don't exist in pregnancy because pregnancy is really, really weird. In pregnancy, there 
is no just not help option. That doesn't exist. Like, if you could just Star Trek beam the fetus out of the mother's womb into an artificial womb, I guess that would be a not help option, but that's not a thing. Like, we can't do that. So in pregnancy, there are only two options. You can either help the fetus by allowing it to exist in the womb until you've given birth, at which point I think legally you don't have to care for the child anymore. Like you could give the child up for adoption. There are lots of safe haven laws. Legally, you wouldn't have an obligation after that. You can either help the child or you can kill the child, either by dismemberment or lethal injection or suffocation, which are the three ways that an abortion occurs. And those are your only two options in pregnancy, help or kill. And I think killing always has to be wrong. Then I think abortion would have to be wrong. Even though I'm not obligated to donate my kidney to someone, I am obligated to help in the case of pregnancy. That is a super brief overview of that argument, but I encourage all the listeners to look it up and get a way more in-depth version so that you'd feel comfortable making that argument if you hear a right-to-refuse argument being made by a pro-choice person. Well, it's kind of ironic, Emily, that one of the principal pro-choice arguments recognizes the humanity of the unborn child but essentially equates it with a parasite. Uh, that, that should tell us that there's something problematic in the logic there. So thanks for really diving into that and, and unpacking that for us. That was fantastic. We've been blessed to speak with you today, Emily. You're a persuasive and energetic and passionate pro-life advocate, and I hope our listeners take advantage of your resources and those of the Equal Rights Institute. Where can they go to find out more? What's the website or what? how can they contact you? So our website is equalrightsinstitute.com. Uh, you'll find links on there to all of our different programs. We have two comprehensive online courses, one for sidewalk counseling and one for more of the persuasive pro-life pro apologetic side. Um, and we also have a huge blog, huge YouTube channel where we're constantly publishing new pro-life content to help pro-lifers make the best arguments against abortion. Um, they can also reach out to me personally if you have a specific question that you'd love to get an answer to. My email is Emily at EqualRightsInstitute.com. Super easy to remember. You can always just look up EqualRightsInstitute.com. Wonderful. Emily Albrecht to the Equal Rights Institute. God bless your work, and thanks for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. It was a pleasure to be here. We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Hey, Kit, what's in the mailbag this week? This week, we are talking about the Supreme Court in an abortion case. They will be taking up a case that has really created a lot of buzz. And we're just wondering, could you break down what's actually being debated in the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization case? Could the court's decision actually make abortion illegal across the nation? What's going on here? Well, the short answer to that question is no, but it is a monumental, momentous Supreme Court case involving abortion, perhaps the biggest one in some time. And it involves a Mississippi law that bans uh, abortion after 15 weeks. And why that matters is, is that current Supreme Court precedent, the, what we call the Roe and Casey progeny, ban pre-viability abortions altogether. And so this is obviously a pre-viability abortion ban. So the court is going to be faced squarely with the question of whether or not that survives under our Constitution. And there'll be whether amending Roe, ending Roe, 
something is going to happen with this case. Now, most of the justices on the Supreme Court would argue that the Roe v. Wade decision is not how we do constitutional law. It was a bad decision when it was decided. It continues to be a bad decision. But whether or not this legal principle called stare decisis should control the case, which means we let a decision stand because of its long-term effects, the way in which it's ingrained itself in our law and culture. And uh, that was the issue that led the court in the Casey decision in 1992 to uphold Roe was this issue of stare decisis. But Roe is hardly settled law or settled policy in American life. It still remains the most controversial question. You could say it guides judicial confirmations and Supreme Court conversations. It remains a controversial issue in our society. So the justices are going to be confronted squarely with whether a pre-viability abortion ban can survive Roe. And do they either amend Roe to say that that ban does not constitute, quote, an undue burden? Do they change the constitutional framework around abortion altogether? Do they overrule Roe v. Wade? These are big questions. Even if they overrule Roe v. Wade, of course, it means that question of abortion as a policy matter goes back to the states, whether the state courts or the state legislatures. So it doesn't end abortion on demand in the United States. It simply changes uh, where the locus of those decisions as a matter of public policy are going to be made. But it's a really, really big decision, and it's one to be watching out for in the coming months, especially as the court hears that in the fall. Thanks, Jason. We'll definitely keep an ear and eye to that case. And what do you have in this week's bricklayer segment, ways that people could start putting their faith into action? Find out a local government meeting, whether it's a town council, a county board meeting, township meeting, and show up and get to know the ideas being discussed, the people involved. We always say that politics is about three P's, people, policy, process, and it requires citizen advocates who are prepared, principled, persuasive, who can persevere. So you got to know the people and you got to know the policy, and then you got to get to know the process a little bit if you want to effectuate change. And one way to do that is to watch that policy or that in that process unfold and get to know the people, the who's involved by showing up at the meetings. You can generally get a copy of a meeting agenda ahead of time so you know what's going to be discussed. Take that one step further and get your ideas on the agenda ahead of time. You can often bring resolutions, proposals, issues for consideration. Maybe you want to see your town establish a crisis pregnancy resource center or at least allow the zoning uh, for one to occur. Start that conversation about what needs to happen in order to make it a reality. By getting involved in the most local level, you can help shape discussions that are going to make an impact on your community and make it a better place to live. That's all the time we have for today. For everyone listening on your podcast app, make sure to follow or subscribe so that you always know when a new episode comes out. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak at the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.